0: I want to start today with one of Aesop's fables. How many of y'all remember Aesop's fables? In the forest there lived four oxen. They were very good friends and always went together to graze in the fields. However, every time they went, a hungry lion tried to attack them. The lion longed for their meat, but they withstood his attack by fighting him as a team. They attacked him with their horns and the lion fled to another forest. But one day, the four oxen fought among themselves. They started going to the forest separately. When the lion returned, he saw that the group was divided. He planned to take advantage of this situation. Finding the first ox grazing in the fields alone, he crept up behind him and ate him up. The next day, he attacked the second ox and killed it too. And this was the way he killed the third and fourth ox. He had four had the four oxen stayed together, they wouldn't have lost their lives. The moral lesson is: united we live, divided we will be killed. Now, how many of you all have heard that? Similar, but a little different. United we live. There you divided we fall. There you go. There you go. We, we've heard that. I mean, that's, that's a common thing that we hear. And it means that unless we stand united, we will easily be destroyed, right? Our sermon text for today is Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. And it says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit In the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. So I called today's message uh, All for One and One for All. Have y'all ever heard the saying? well, if you're going to play, you have to play by their rules, right? You, like you go to, uh, I, I, like, I use the example of Dixie softball or baseball. If you're going to play Dixie softball or baseball, you're going to play by their rule book. They, you have to play by the rules. You have umpires there, and they let you know if you stand outside of the rules. Uh, same goes with UIL sports. There are rules that they have, things that you have to do, um, That goes for many things. If you want to play a game, you have to play by their rules. If you want to belong to a certain society, you have to live by their rules, live by their their, uh, guidelines, right? If you want to join a country club, they have requirements, right? Every place you go has some sort of a guide, some sort of a rule that you have to follow. It's true in sports, in civic groups, even at church. In this passage today, Paul paints the picture of the kind of life that a person must live when they enter the fellowship of the Christian church. And he gives five basic but essential words of the Christian faith. First is humility. And humility, Christian humility comes from from self-knowledge. It's the virtue by which a person becomes conscious of their own unworthiness. It's uncomfortable to face who we are sometimes, isn't it? It's, it's, it's uncomfortable to, to see who we are um, in our life. You know, mistakes that we've made, people that we've hurt, lives that, that have been affected by us one way or the other. It, it's the truest knowledge of ourself. We experience humility by putting our life alongside the life of Jesus. We see how we measure up. Jesus is the standard for us, for our lives. The second essential of Christianity is gentleness. Aristotle defined every virtue as the mean between two extremes. And this one he defines as the mean between being too angry and never being angry at all. It is, it is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. And additionally, one who possesses this gentleness is the one who has every instinct and every passion under complete control. Now, raise your hand if you fall into that category. Nobody in the early service raised their hand either. The third quality of the Christian is patience or long suffering. It describes the spirit which never admits defeat, which will never be broken by misfortune or suffering, by any disappointment or discouragement, and it persists to the end. It is the spirit which can suffer unpleasant people with graciousness, and it can, it can, um, it can suffer fools without irritation. If God had been human, I believe that God would have long since wiped the world out for disobedience, right? But God has that patience. We, have, we must have the same patience that God has shown us. The fourth great quality is love, which I believe defines the entire Bible. The, the, the love of God is, is found within the entire Scripture, Christian love was something so new that the Christian writers had to use a very unusual Greek word for it, agape. And there are several kinds of agape, but we won't go into those today. But it's a word that translates as love and charity. It means that nothing that a person can do or will do will make us seek anything but the highest good for them. Did you get that? Nothing that a person can do or will do can make us have anything for the hope of the highest good. Neither injury or insult will result in anything but kindness toward them. Agape is a quality of mind and heart which compels a Christian to never feel bitterness or desire for revenge, but always seeks the highest good no matter the circumstance. We're lacking in that as a nation, and as a world. The fifth is peace. It's Paul's advice that people, the people to whom he is writing should pursue a sacred oneness, which should characterize the true church. Peace may be defined as a right relationship between one another. When self dies and Christ occupies our heart, then comes peace, that oneness, which is a great quality for us to, to possess. And then Paul goes on to explain the basis on which Christian unity is founded. There's one body. And the oneness of the church is essential for the work of Christ. A oneness founded on common love of Christ and of every part of the other. Like with the puzzle down there. We all bring our gifts and our talents to the church, to the, to the, to the Christianity, to the followers of Christ. And, and each piece works together. And not only do we bring our piece, but we love the other pieces. We love them for what they share. We love them for what they offer. There's one spirit. The word pneuma in Greek means both spirit and breath. And unless breath is in the body, right? The body dies. Correct? And the vitalizing breath of the body of the church is the spirit of Christ. If the spirit is not in the church, the church dies. There is one hope and one goal in our calling. We are all moving toward perfection. You know, we're Methodists. We talk about going on to perfection. And perfection is not that dictionary version of perfection that we read. The perfection we're talking about is when the will of God and our will lines up perfectly. We desire the same thing that God desires. We yearn for the same thing that God yearns for. That's when we reach Christian perfection we want to be that image of god there is one lord philippians 2:11 tells us that jesus christ is lord and paul believed that eventually all people would confess this truth there's one faith by this paul means that all christians are bound together because they have made the commitment both separately and corporately to love jesus christ there's one baptism before anything else, baptism was a, a public confession of faith and, only, and the only way to enter into Christian fellowship. Finally, there's one God. I, I need to back up to the one baptism. Um, and it is our practice and understanding that, that we accept baptism from wherever you got it if it was a Baptist church, Presbyterian church, Catholic church, wherever you were baptized, we accept that because we, we believe that, that baptism was initiated by God and you can't improve on what God has done. So your baptism should carry. Finally, there's one God. And the greatest thing about this God is it's not that he is king, it's not that God is judge, but it's that he is father. He has... Uh, he, it is the, the relationship of a loving parent to whom we have been adopted. God, God chose us out of his great love. We, we didn't choose God. God chose us from the beginning of time as we know it and beyond. You know, we could go into that whole, what was God before time began? Well, that's, that's a big thought that we need, you know, we can think through on another day. But God chose us to be part of God's great kingdom and God's great love. And the Christian idea of God begins in love. Paul believed that in everything there was God. So why does our allegiance to Jesus not break down the barriers of misunderstandings within the family of God? Why do we continue to have division and strife and trouble? What? When, when we should be available as God's instruments, uh, as, as, a, as a, a vessel of, of healing and, and love and reconciliation and peace, why do we still have that trouble? The church is supposed to be the body of Christ, right? And as the life of Jesus is breathed into every member of the body, together we become one, and we become the example of Jesus to the world. Seems simple enough. Why do we have division? Together, Like in the puzzle, we see the bigger picture. We see the greater end to this. We see life ahead. Our unity is always in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 says no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So we, we find God and we find that relationship with God on a personal level and then we join corporately. And claim Jesus as our Lord together. And connectionally, we are stronger. We get more things done. We are called to pray for and to love people everywhere. We look for the Jesus in the faces of the people uh, other than just the people in our own church. (coughs) You know, you hear people talk about, well, I want to go to the perfect church. I want to look for the perfect church the more together church. But like every other church and every other community, we all have just plain, ordinary, everyday folks, right? We're the same as they are, and they are the same as we are. And with that comes different opinions, cultures, backgrounds, expectations, But sometimes those perfect churches that claim to be perfect, we see them working to continue their perfection by choosing who is and who isn't involved in the perfect church. Back in my youth ministry days, um, there was a church that, that was close to us that was, that was firmly planted literally on the county line road right there in the edge of two, two towns and two counties. And he and I had a conversation one day, the youth minister, we all worked together, and I said, man, you are, you are in such a great place because you can gain from either one of these, these pretty good-sized towns with very, a very variety group of people. And he said, yeah, in a perfect world I would, but our elders don't really want me pulling kids from this community because they really wouldn't be good for our church. Some of them wouldn't be able to add to our finances, add to our our community of belief. Ba- basically, we really just don't want the people from that town. They believed that the people wouldn't be beneficial to the church because of their nationality, their color, their socioeconomic condition, they were somehow less than desirable. I'm going to tell you that Scripture doesn't say that's the way to do this. We are created in God's image. Scripture does tell us that. We are Equals in the eyes of God. That's black and white and brown and red and LGBTQ and men and women and poor and wealthy. We are all the same. And we are included in the good news. We are welcomed into the loving embrace of Christ Jesus and welcomed into the family of God. We as Methodists want to be the kind of people who give attention to the nameless and to the voiceless and to the homeless and to the outcast, even when it means that the rich and the powerful and the connected and the superior have to wait. Even if it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Friends, we are surrounded by division. Our country, our world, our politics, our family, even our church. Even our church. Y'all know what's going on. Even our church is Divided, And I will tell you today that the devil is working overtime to tear us down. Anything that we have built, anything that we have worked hard, anything that the Holy Spirit has done within us, Satan is working hard to break that. I believe that hell is real and I believe that the devil wants us right there. We cannot give up and give in. We are called to unity and we are called to be one in Jesus Christ and here and now where you and I worship together imperfect as we are we are Christ's body part of the one great church we belong to a great church here this is a great church and we should love and appreciate and work and pray toward its good health and its success in showing a needy and a broken world the love of Jesus Christ that is our job We have an opportunity to reflect God's love in the church, in Decatur, in Wise County, and in the world around us. All for one and one for all.